All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor of gathering together as family and the unity that you've provided, Father, specifically for your purposes to bring us together, to bring glory to you. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what a privilege this is, Father. Each and every time you give us this opportunity, we're so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love, the thing that propels us forward and just draws us near to you, Father. Thank you for revealing it to us in time. And thank you for giving us the canon of Scripture that we have, that we're able to be sanctified by it, that your Spirit may use it in our lives to sanctify us, to, again, bring glory to you. For that is your will in time. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us and as well those gentlemen that are traveling as missionaries this week uh, and next week. We pray for their safe return, all of them. We pray also for those that are still lost. Uh, many of those that these two fine gentlemen will be visiting over in India. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this, a precious morning like this, a reality for all of us. Father, thank you for that. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, Part 22, uh, this past week of messages was dominated by one particular question up here on the board. We'll start this way. How are we sanctified? Um, and you have to get that straight in your own souls. There's no speculation allowed, uh, as it says up here on the board. Most, quote, Christians make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. Everyone has their ideas, in other words. The most common in our area, at least, is the religious estimation of sanctification. In other words, living up to or, um, you know, by human standards and human power, um, living up to certain fruit or producing certain types of fruit. That's just religion and legalism, thinking that that's going to appease God, if you would. So the most common in our area, at least, is the religious estimation of sanctification. Many self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. Don't believe me? Ask them. The next time someone says, I'm a Christian, ask them about sanctification. Say, well, what do you think about sanctification? See what they say. And this is actually a word that shows up in our Bibles more than once. It's not like it's some made-up theological term. So ask them, if you don't believe me, but nonetheless, many self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. At best, at best, they understand the concept of spiritual growth. I mean, a lot of them, that's what they're trying to prove to the world in the first place with their religiosity. Compare that to Psalm 111.10, Proverbs 4.7. And 9, verse 10. Go to Psalm 111, verse 10. 
Again, how are we sanctified? That's the question that's been coming from the pulpit this past week. Most Christians make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. The most common in our area, at least, is the religious estimation of sanctification. Many self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. At best, they understand the concept of spiritual growth. So we'll look at some passages here. Psalm 111, verse 10. In other words, they don't have any real wisdom. That's the point on the board. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Go to Proverbs 4.7. Proverbs 4.7. We spent a fair amount of time, not that long ago, on Proverbs 4.7, but it's a welcome reminder this morning as we're beginning with the point on the board. Proverbs 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Who doesn't want to understand? The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. And then how about Proverbs 9, verse 10? Proverbs 9, verse 10. And all this to speak to the point on the board. How are we sanctified in light of the fact that a lot of so-called Christians make gross estimations when we have Holy Scripture? Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, John 1 says that He is the Word. The Word become flesh. We have the Word. This is the Bible, right? This is the Word of God. And so if we want understanding, we have to read our Bibles. That's the point. And if we read our Bibles, then we don't have to question or misunderstand, uh, most likely, what sanctification is. That's the question on the board. How are we sanctified? Well, the only place you can look is the Bible, is the Word of God. And that's what Proverbs 9.10 is speaking of. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, how do you get knowledge of the Holy One? You read your Bible. That's it. Again, most so-called Christians lack true wisdom from the Word of God because they refuse to read the Bible. If you've ever been in, um, you know, in a place of contention with a so-called Christian from a certain religion, let's say, they very seldom will quote the Bible. They'll quote the church, or I feel God this way, and leave me alone, because God and I have a special relationship. Well, that relationship doesn't exist, or maybe it's antagonistic to what the Word of God actually says. And who cares about what some religion says? Is that religion based on Holy Scripture or not? That's what really counts. That's why there's no such thing in the Bible as denominations. It's not there. There's no such thing as the hierarchies that exist in these denominations. It's not there. Why? Because God knows people. That's why. Because God knows people. That's why. 
And anytime there's that kind of structure, it's no different than, you know, the, the tower at Babel. They start building up. And eventually someone's on the top, you see, with a big hat. And people argue based on what the church says instead of what the Bible says. Try it. I've been there too many times. But this is what Holy Scripture says. Again, most Christians that I've met, especially in this area, lack wisdom because they don't have the Word of God. And the first part of wisdom is to acquire wisdom. If you want understanding of the Holy One, you read Scripture because He's the Word. So many so-called Christians refuse to read the Bible. That's the great tragedy, I believe, at least in our era. Nobody reads their Bible anymore. See, before, think about just, I'm not going to digress too far, but before uh, internet, radio, television, before just those three types of media, what else would, did people do? They read books. Imagine that. People actually sat down and read books. People would actually read their Bibles together as families. How often does that happen? No. Most people are like... How are we sanctified? Most Christians make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. The most common in our area is, at least, is the religious estimation of sanctification. Going to church. Wearing a Sunday best. That's not sanctification. I mean, I appreciate that you dress up, but it's really me that's appreciating it and everyone else that might be seeing you. I mean, I appreciate that you take a shower before you come here. No, I'm being real. Like, I don't want to smell gross people. If you come gross and that's all you can, you just happen, that's the only way you could get here, I'm cool with that. But most of you don't have that problem. So I appreciate it, but that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's not about getting to church. It's about being a member of the body, the church of Christ, a functioning member, one that actually understands the head of the body, one that obeys the head of the body. That's the picture of marriage, right? Many self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. At best, they understand the concept of spiritual growth. Okay, so the point the Spirit's been making up here on the board, if you haven't caught it yet, the only place to look for answers is in the Bible. You want to understand something fundamental like sanctification? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. It's that simple. It's the only place to go. I can guide you there. That's part of my job. I can remind you. I can kind of, you know, guide you with the staff, you know, pitch you over the head a little bit with the rod. But the whole idea is to get you back to the Word of God because that's where you find wisdom and understanding. I can't give you my wisdom, my understanding, if I even have any to give. So the only place to look for answers in the Bible uh, is in the Bible. Excuse me. Do not make the mistake of making stuff up that appeases your human sensibilities. Don't make stuff up. If you're too lazy to go to the Bible, just say, I'm too lazy to go to the Bible. But don't make stuff up. And please, don't grab it like we saw with Tozer this past week. Don't grab it from anyone don't just take my word for it just because I stand behind a pulpit. Don't make that mistake. That's lazy. Remember, human sensibilities never match God, so you can't show up. You have to get your viewpoint, in other words, from the Word of God. He doesn't say He won't give it to you. 
He says, mine are not yours, not your natural. Your natural thinking is not mine at all. But I've given you the Bible, so if you want my thinking, read what I've given you. So on Thursday, we began class with up here on the board, this here, on this idea of sanctification that's been front and center. And remember, we're talking about um, devotion to the Lord. Never, ever speculate about how God sanctifies His own. The definition for and the, the mechanics behind sanctification aren't, quote, felt, if you would. I feel God this way, aren't felt into place or arrived at through philosophical debate. They are given in one place, the Word of God. Go to 2 Timothy 3.13. 2 Timothy 3.13. Don't do this thing. Don't speculate as to how you are sanctified. I mean, it is really kind of an affront if you think about it. God's going to save you, and then you're going to tell Him how He's going to save and sanctify you? Through speculation, through philosophical debate? It's kind of an insult. It's an affront to the holy God of the universe. 2 Timothy 3.13, But, nonetheless, but, 2 Timothy 3.13, Evil men and impostors, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's talking about even bad pastors. Folks that want to try to teach you. You know, folks from some religious, quote, church that will actually lie to you, give you deceptions. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom. I just talked about that. If you want wisdom, you go to the Holy Bible. Sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation slash deliverance, if you would, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, what you're reading, is inspired, inspired through Theonoustos, I believe, uh, it means God-breathed in the, in the Greek. All, in, uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There you have the idea of doing again. Again, the point on the board is, relative to sanctification, never ever speculate about how God sanctifies His own. The definition for and the mechanics behind sanctification aren't felt into place or arrived at through philosophical debate. They are given in one place, the Word of God. I think one, one way that people get confused about sanctification is they reverse causes and effects. That's where religion comes in. If you get cause and effect backwards, all of a sudden you become religious. By grace, there's fruit. But if you get it backwards... If you try to produce fruit before grace, you now become religious. So one way that people get confused about sanctification is they reverse causes and effects. Thinking that, working out their salvation, to borrow from Philippians 2.12, means compiling a variety of otherwise godly fruit through human effort and exertion. I mean, what's left? If it's not the grace of God, if you've reversed it, if the fruit precedes the grace of God, well then who's the power or the energy? Remember Enigeo? 
for it's God that's working you. Remember that from last week? Energeo, that's the Greek. For it's God that's in work, at work in you. It's his energy. But if you put his energy after the fruit, then who's producing the fruit? Who's left? You. And they are exhausted. That's called human effort and exertion. And that's exactly what is the uh, hallmark of religion. A bunch of people putting on their Sunday best, exerting themselves to prove that they're worthy of God's love, to prove that they can work their way into heaven, to prove all these things that are freely given under the premise of humility. But they don't want that, you see. So there's people that got these things backwards, leading all the way backwards to salvation proper even, working at, thinking that working out their salvation means compiling a variety of otherwise godly fruit through human effort and exertion. The Spirit gave us all something to think about regarding this up here on the board. This is from this past week. Sanctification results versus causes. We must learn to differentiate between results described in the Bible and their causes. For example, a result is peace, whereas the cause is righteousness. That's why the Bible says the peaceful root fruit of righteousness. The result of righteousness is peace as a fruit, in other words. As we've studied, Hebrews 12, 11, stated differently, up here on the board, results versus causes. If we get these two things backwards, we suffer. So the holy God of the universe, the one who loved you enough, the one uh, who hung on a cross for you even, says, is trying to protect you. Don't get these things backwards because if you do, you're going to suffer. And I don't want you to suffer because, as I've proven to you, I love you. So if we get these two things backwards, we suffer. Isaiah 5.20, Matthew 6.22, 23. I'll give you Isaiah 5.20 up here on the board since we saw those passages last week. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those. In other words, this is bad for you. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those. That means they're going to suffer for it. That's you and I. If we decide we're going to turn things around and get religious, we're going to suffer. Minimally, we're going to be exhausted. Minimally. Have you ever noticed why people who we might uh, posture as truly spiritual people always seem to have that, su that sort of reserve energy? They're tired. They got all kinds of. Re I'm thinking of Todd Johnson right now. They have all other all kinds of reasons why to be completely exhausted, but somehow he's here. He's been back and forth to Boston a bazillion times this week while he runs his own business, by the way, while he's got other things going on. While other and somehow he shows up. And he's still got a smile on his face. He's still at least got a good attitude. How's that happen? Because he doesn't have it backwards. That's what I believe. Because he's dependent on the grace of God. That's what I believe. Is that fair to say, DJ? Yeah. It's nice to put yourself up, isn't it? He's like, amen. That's me, man, all the way. <laughs> right? No, I'm serious, though. You ever wonder why those people have that extra like, uh, reserve of energy? How do they do it? That's how. Because they don't have it backwards. It's the people that are religious 
and they could be secretly religious, who come in here dragging uh, their behinds because they're exhausted all the time. And why are they exhausted? If God does all the heavy lifting, why are they exhausted? Because they must be trying to lift things on their own. It's not rocket science. That's how we can evaluate our own lives. Why are we exhausted? I'm not talking about actual viable reasons for being exhausted. Now I'm thinking about like Betty back there, right? Who has someone she has to take care of all the time who's getting increasingly difficult. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about soulish energy being pushed down to a place where they're distraught. Why does that happen? And what is the Spirit trying to protect us from? That very thing. Don't get them backwards. Don't come to church and get yourself on a treadmill. This is mash tent, right? We're supposed to be getting edified, built up. We're supposed to recover in here. We're supposed to find the very resources to go back out there with energy, energeo, God's energy. But if we refuse, if we put things back, woe to us. That's what the Bible tells us. So if we're thinking about our 22-part series now, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, there are multiple things that lead us to this kind of devotion. And that's what this has all been about. Why would we be devoted, right? We answered what it was, but why? Why would we be devoted undistractedly to the Lord? And what's our motivation? So there are multiple things that lead to this kind of devotion. We may rightly consider devotion as a godly result. It is a result of something. So if you, if you flip it, now you're devoted, and then you expect somehow God's approval or grace. No, devotion is actually the result. The fundamental premise is that you read your Bible, you get closer, you take in more of the Word. Remember, the beginning of wisdom is wisdom. The more you do that, is acquire wisdom. The more you do that, the more devoted you're going to be. If you try to be devoted on your own time and your own power, you're going to be exhausted, and in the end, you'll actually be less devoted. And that's not bringing glory to God. So we might consider devotion as a godly result, not the cause for a happy, peaceful life. The result of something. A result of what exactly? Well, as the Spirit's been pointing out, gratitude. How about that for starters? Not the only reason, but how about that? How about devotion because you're grateful? How about that? I'm just grateful to be, I'll tell you what, I was thinking about that this morning. I'm just grateful to be here. Honest to goodness, I'm just grateful to be alive, to be healthy enough to stand behind a pulpit and do God's work. That alone gives me gratitude. That alone wants me, uh, is the reason, a reason to devote myself to Him. And every time a fiery dart comes in or some distraction to sort of keep it at bay, because I have a sense of responsibility and a, a sense of pro, a protectiveness so that this thing can happen, so that you all can be fed this morning, all from a baseline of gratitude. And I am grateful that DJ's here, and I am grateful that Betty's here, and I'm grateful that all of you are here. So... We might re right, rightly consider uh, devotion as a godly result, and for starters, a result of gratitude. 
We are, as we've learned over the past few weeks now, saved and sanctified daily. Something we can all agree upon is the source of so much gratitude. Not looking at our salvation proper as just some forensic detail from decades ago, but that God actively saves and sanctifies us daily. For that, I'm very grateful. I mean, that's what's happening right now. You're being fed the very Word of God. That's how He sanctifies you. So frankly, all of this is just, again, a matter of perspective. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. We get so tied up and distracted and even agitated by the details of life. Someone young, like a Sean back there, it's, you know, high school. The pressures or the distractions of high school. Someone like Lois, I don't, I don't know Lois. I haven't got there yet. <laughs> or someone like a Greg, right, who's writing code all day and has to put up with his cube mates, right, who probably don't bathe as often as they should. That is true. Greg's like, I'm one of them. But I do bathe on Sundays. So... <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. It's just a matter of perspective. Rejoice always. Pray. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Remember, that's one big sentence. All three of those things, that's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. That'd be a good tattoo. If I ever got a tattoo, I'm not, but if I ever got a tattoo, I might put that. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Just three words. That's not three words, is it? (laughs) This many. Perspective provides us with a reason to be grateful for all that he has done for us. Amen? He's done an awful lot in our lives. And we are undeserving. You know what? This perspective, it's his divine will up here on the board. Gratitude that leads to devotion. God doesn't just want you to be grateful. He wants to remind you by grace exactly why you have so much to be grateful for. Starting with the fact that we are saved and sanctified daily. Hence, look at verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. What do you think is actually happening right now? You're being taught from a pulpit. I'm filled with the Spirit. The same Spirit who God breathed, inspired the Word that we're reading together. Don't quench Him. Don't put that fire out, in other words. He's reminding you. You have so much to be grateful for. Listen to Him. Listen to the reminders He sends from this pulpit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Perspective. Again, the point on the board. Gratitude that leads to devotion. God doesn't just want you to be grateful. He wants to remind you by grace exactly why you have so much to be grateful for. Starting with the fact that we are saved and sanctified daily. Don't quench that. Don't say, I know. Don't get all adolescent. I know. That's quenching the Spirit. 
He's doing it because he loves you. You know, just like when you were a bratty adolescent, that's why you're all laughing, right? And you did that to your parents. Your parents loved you when they were saying it. Probably don't realize it until now. But he loves you, and he's saying, I'm trying to remind you because I love you. As the Spirit's been saying all along here, in order to receive said gratitude, a person must be given it. Well, there's another perspective for you. That being grateful is righteous fruit. And so you have this string of pearls, so to speak, that even being grateful is righteous fruit. And since righteous fruit is a good thing, as James 1.17 says, it's from above. Because every good thing is from above. So even the ability to be grateful is a grace gift. Aren't you? I got, doesn't this blow your mind? I got goosebumps right now. The fact that I can actually be grateful is also a gift. The fact that I have the faculties to be grateful, to experience maybe a lifestyle of gratitude is a grace gift. Yep. Which means it was given to you by grace. And who, pray tell, does God give grace to? Jeez, I don't know. How about we consult the book of wisdom? Go to James 4, 6. So do you want gratitude? All right. All right. James 4, 6. And since gratitude is a grace gift, it must be from above. It has to be given by grace. Even your ability to be grateful... Understanding what to be grateful for. James 4, 6, he gives a greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There it is. You want the grace gift of gratitude and therefore its fruit, devotion to Christ, and so on and so forth. Peace. Joy, all those things that we've learned that are downstream from one thing. What's that one thing up here on the board? Ta-da! Haven't seen this before, huh? Humility. That's the one thing. I'm going to tell you something straight up right now. You all stink. I don't mean you, Greg. I don't mean that way. You and your coders. I mean, none of you are worthy of really anything. It's only by the grace of God that there's anything good in you or about you. Right? You didn't manufacture your goodness on your own. You didn't even get yourself here on your own this morning. God did. God made your life possible. God made any modicum of gratitude that's in your soul right now possible. The only reason you got it is you had either moments or continued moments of humility. And God only knows that He can take that away at any time He wants. You want to become a little arrogant, you know, you want to regress for a moment into adolescence and become an arrogant little, you know, head rocker? Well, He might just take that away from you then. You might hit a moment or a time or a stretch of, I don't know, insecurity. Anxiety, pain, suffering, 
humility. With thankfulness, I have in parentheses, gratitude, within thankfulness is humility. In other words, a humble person is the one that's grateful. Without humility, you don't get the gift because we just decided that gratitude, especially a life of gratitude, living in that life, is a grace gift from above. So without humility, you don't get it. You get what's left over. After God removes himself, if you would, from the equation, what do you have left? Nothing but darkness because he is light. So within thankfulness is humility. Living in a lifestyle of thanksgiving is clearly a big part of sanctification. The very peace our Lord has promised us in John 14, 27, remember he said, my peace I give to you, is directly linked to gratitude. Go to Colossians 3.15. Colossians 3.15. And if you know anything about God, you know that that's what he wants for you. That's what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Right? Rejoice, pray, be, be thankful for everything. That was what? God's will. Look at Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Ah. Now we're talking about the sphere of God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So when we read Colossians 3.15, we ought to immediately think about sanctification. We ought to think immediately about sanctification for that is what let's face it colossians 3 the whole chapter speaks to sanctification we have been given so many beautiful illustrations in the bible of what sanctification looks like for example i want to read with you now one of my you know quote unquote favorite chapters in the bible go to ephesians 1 and i just want you to think about I just want you to think about sanctification. Just think about what the Spirit's been saying now for 21 and a half lessons. What about sanctification? What is sanctification? How are we sanctified? Well, this is how we learn. We read the actual Bible. We don't sit down over a glass of wine and pontificate and say, well, this is what I think God is. This is how I think God sanctifies us. Ephesians 1.1 Let's just read it. I'm not going to say much. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. What's the will of God? Your sanctification. Okay, so Paul, the deliverer, the messenger, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God. So you know that already, by the will of God implies what? For sanctification's sake. Because that's God's will. That you are sanctified. So Paul writes this chapter for sanctification's sake. Don't don't miss these little pearls. By the will of God. What's the will of God? That you're sanctified. So I'm going to write this. Same reason I'm standing before you today. For your sanctification. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Do you see all this? Sanctification by grace, that could be the theme so far. And this is God's will. Sanctification by grace, this is God's will. Verse 8, which he, has, he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord and Je Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Does that not sound like 1 Thessalonians 5? Huh, imagine that. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, not over a glass of wine, in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You want gratitude? There you go. You want something to be grateful for? There you go. You want hope? There you go. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power? Energeo, if you would. Probably dunamis in the Greek there. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. But, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whew. That's what sanctification looks like. Paul said, by the will of God. Because it's God's will that you're sanctified. And if you ever want to be encouraged, my friends, read Ephesians or Colossians. They're just wonderful books. If you ever in a time and you just sort of, you know, your faith is sort of just crooked or whatever, just read Ephesians. Pick up Ephesians. You could read the whole book. I mean, we just read that in, what, a few minutes? 
Just read Ephesians, six chapters. Read Colossians, same idea. They are wonderful depictions of sanctification. Speaking of sanctification, up here on the board. Sanctification is our salvation alive and active. This came out on Tuesday. Our salvation shines out of darkness, showing us the way from our previous lives. For there is real momentum that we must contend with, even after we are born again. So I need you to concentrate here, because we're going to get a little theological. But sanctification is our salvation, alive and active. In other words, we're sanctified on the premise of the gospel itself. That's why we hold the gospel so dear. That's why worse comes to worse. If you're miserable some morning, just remember the gospel. Put the gospel as the centerpiece of whatever that day's table is set before you. Make it the centerpiece, and you'll be fine. So sanctification is our salvation, alive and active. It shines out of darkness, showing us the way from our previous lives. But in all reality, as the Bible tells us, we are saved from the penalty of sin, but not the power or the presence yet. There's what we might call theologically the vestiges, the leftovers of sin, the stickiness, the influence, the, mag the magnetism of darkness to our human flesh that we're saddled with. And so we're not completely delivered yet. We're not mature to the point where we have no more attraction even to the old things. Matter of fact, our flesh is one of our primary enemies. But we know this positionally. When we talk about positional sanctification, phase one, if you would, Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So as we've learned so many times in the past, the reality is that while we are saved from the penalty of sin, He rescued us from the domain of darkness, the truth is that we are not saved from the power or presence of it experientially. That's why we continue to sin. That's why some of you have probably sinned ten times since you've been sitting here since class started. Because you've been thinking about this or that, which might be something unholy. Why is that? Why are you so attracted to darkness? If it's unholy, it's not good, right? So how do you have the audacity to sit in God's chapel in sin? And do you think God knows about those things? Of course He does. Of course He does. Hence the point on the board. In other words, while guaranteed ultimate sanctification once born again, we aren't guaranteed an unfettered life, void of sin and darkness experientially. Therefore, the implication is simple. We must be sanctified experientially to be delivered from our old lives, where the old self resided. We have to be sanctified experientially. It's almost like a, I don't know, a cleansing, if you would. We have to be delivered, removed from the stickiness of the self-life. A perfect illustration of what it is we are being delivered from experientially for most Americans is so-called temporal blessings and prosperity. You see, we're all raised in America, or as I just saw a, a bumper sticker, America, 
M-U-R-I-C-A, Merica. Nobody? Anyways. As we're all raising Merica. Nobody? Come on. Sean, you got to at least laugh. Come on. Right? We're raised to think that God loves us, or because we're blessed, God must love us. We've, these things have gotten blended. Religion and, uh, and prosperity have somehow become one, one relationship, and that's not true at all. That's not true at all. I mean, Job had everything taken away in an instant. And he was considerably wealthy. That's not, that's not a good relationship to have, but yet that's what we're brought up to believe. We're brought up to believe that temporal blessings and prosperity must be from God. In other words, they go both, the relationship is so one-to-one that it's the one and the same. That if we have blessings and prosperity, it must be from God because we think it's good. Well, like, hey, you know, I'm eating filet mignon this afternoon. Well, is that from God or not? Well, American Christians could be, but maybe not. That's the whole point. American Christians like to point to prosperity and automatically call it a blessing. See this? I'm blessed. God blessed me. Oh, no, 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 no. Not so fast. Remember we read, what is it, Psalm 73? That was the lament of the psalmist, right? Why are the wicked fat, dumb, and happy, basically? Why are they prospering? Why do they wear their arrogance like a, like a necklace around themselves? Look at me, I'm awesome. Isn't that what we see in media now? I'm awesome because I'm rich or something like that. So we know that there are a lot of wicked people out there that are not godly at all. So we know immediately that we cannot say that just because we're prospering, even, even as a believer, we cannot say just because we're prospering, it must be godly. It must be from God. So American Christians, though, nonetheless, like to point to prosperity and automatically call it a blessing. But I'd argue, as would the apostles, I believe, that American prosperity is more of a test than a blessing. American prosperity is more of a test than a blessing. Case in point. Okay, so you hit it, you hit it rich. Eee! What do you do? What do you do? Do you first think about others? Or do you think about your next trip to Cancun? Or Hawaii, or wherever it is you like to go? Uh, Vail. If you ski or something, I don't know. What's the who, who's the first group of people you think about? Is it this church? Is it your is it your actual brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it you, and maybe some ungodly friends, who now you can afford to keep up with and party with? You know what I'm saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying just because you got money or just something, some prosperity came your way doesn't mean that it was from God. And it doesn't have to be money. Money's the easy one, right? That's the layup. How about reputation? All of a sudden, you've become popular. You got yourself a new haircut. <laughs> Next thing you know, everybody's like, well, I didn't know you were such a stud, Sean. Oh, I'm sorry, Sean. There's another Sean. Different spelling. S-H-A-U-N. Okay? Not you. You got... Oh, I didn't know you were such a stud. 
next to you. Know, I kind of am, right? I kind of am. I'm popular now. I'm, I'm, I'm desired by the world because God knows that that's what I needed. And therefore, it is a blessing. No, it's not. Because now you spend five times as much time on your phone than you did before, answering all the flirtatious requests for your company. Is that from God? Nope. Nope. It is not. I mean, it'd be real convenient to say it is, right? It'd be really nice. be a lot less friction in your soul if you were just able to go, it is, but it's not. So I believe that American prosperity is more of a test than a blessing. A test than a blessing. Another case in point. Michael and uh, Scott are going to see this. You go to a foreign country and they figure out that you're American, you automatically have status. I mean high status. You're automatically way up here. And in a caste system like in India, that's a big deal. You can kind of walk around like King Farouk, right? You kind of walk. Why? Because you're an American? Is that a blessing or a test? How do you respond to said test? I kind of am awesome. Because I'm like 100% American. And if someone's willing to give me like approbation, if someone's supposed to, is gonna, willing to build me up, just because I was born in America, America, just because I was born there, right? I knew I'd get you a laugh eventually. Oh, just give me a golf clap, right? What, what, is, that a, is that a test? What is it? You tell me. Isn't it obvious? American prosperity is more of a test than a blessing. That I am convinced of. Not saying you can't pass it, just saying it's a test. It's really easy to fail. It is in many ways a failed experiment. And God knew it had failed. God knows that you'd fail that test. And he uses it. Remember the part of the clay? I can use some for honor, some for dishonor. God will actually ordain some things to happen. Let them happen, in other words, even though they're evil, so that you become a proverb or a byword. You become exactly what he said you would become. And then he uses it as a teaching tool for the rest of us. Yeah. So, in many ways, America is a failed experiment. And God knew it would fail. And therefore, an indictment against mankind's weaknesses. In other words, can mankind handle this kind of prosperity? Heck, we're believers and we're all laughing about the fact that we can't. Imagine unbelievers. Imagine the wicked. Their entire being, their entire self-esteem is based on their wages or their, whatever, their reputation or this other, all this other garbage that's from the pit of hell, not from above. Because all it does is keep them away from Christ. They said, what do I need to repent for? I'm on top of the world. What do I need God for? That's for the weak. Look at me. I'm my own God. You see? That's America. It's a huge test, and I believe... It's failed all the time. Actually, probably predominantly failed. Even by you and I, if you really think about it. This is why we believers ought to heed the Spirit's warning up here on the board. 
to stay the course. America is racked with prosperity that most of its citizens cannot handle in terms of bringing glory to God. This includes immature believers even. I shouldn't just pick out immature believers, but you know what I'm saying. There's a correlation there. The temptation for believers is to become envious of others' prosperity, even if they are evil. That was Psalm 73. That there's a value to prosperity. Doesn't matter how you got it. I mean, how many people in America do we hold up? And they're actually crooks. All I can think about, remember John Gotti? The, the mobster? They called him the Don Juan or something like that. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And people were angry when he got put in jail. He's a, a, a murderous, killing, horrific individual, right? Somehow that guy, because he was rich and well-dressed, used to wear like $5,000 suits, only a little bit more expensive than this one. Just imagine it. Right? Knock a few zeros off, maybe. People idolized him. He's a killer. How, how does that even work? How do we idolize a killer? Because we're warped. We think that because you have a, a, a certain level of wealth and therefore notoriety, it doesn't matter how you got it, just that you have it. So when you adopt that system of thinking, now anybody that has it, whether they're wicked or not, is to be held up. And therefore, since they have value, you can be envious of them. Welcome to America, where we idolize crooked, murderous people because they're prosperous. Hmm. That's what the Spirit's saying. The temptation for believers even, is to become envious of others' prosperity, even if they are evil. We ended last Sunday with a very simple litmus test, one of my favorite litmus tests of all litmus tests that's ever come from this pulpit. Very simple. If what you are doing is taking away from your first love, it isn't from God. Don't sit there and squirm, and don't lawyer up. And don't waste your time going to the Bible when you don't normally, just to look for loopholes to lawyer up for your ridiculous lifestyle. Don't do that, because that's what most people do. Those are the kind of questions that pastors get. Is it really bad that I'm doing this? You tell me. Well, I found all this scripture, you know. And What about the other scripture? What about the gospel and the Great Commission? I don't know. I haven't been studying that. How about sanctification? I don't know. I don't know. I just want to make sure that my lifestyle is somehow pervertedly supported by twisted scripture. Can we get over this? Can we get through this, please? That's the kind of garbage I get faced with. People aren't earnest. They're not humble. God gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the arrogant. Do you know what I'm getting at? We're not supposed to lawyer up. You know in your heart, if you're doing something that's taking you away from truth, that's antagonistic to God's sanctification, which is His will, then you're wrong. Period. If what you're doing is taking you away from Him, it's not from God because God doesn't do that. That is not God's will. God's drawing you to Him. Someone, something, some enemy is trying to draw you away from Him. Do you see? It's that simple. It has to be simple enough for a young child even. 
a new believer even, to understand. It can't be rocket science because we'd leave half of the intellectualism out. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to be a PhD to understand scripture and truth. If what you're doing is taking away from your first love, it's not from God. No matter how well it matches with your plans of success or how good it feels or how admired you are for it. And don't lawyer up. You know, as well as God knows even better, if what you're doing is not from Him. And don't lawyer up. And the way you can lawyer up is to start creating these blessings, these one-to-one relationships. Well, it's got to be from God because God knows me. I'm His child and God loves me. No, what you just described is partiality. And God's not partial. God doesn't play favorites. Just because you're a whiny little doesn't mean he's going to appease you. That's bad parenting. God's foremost command is to love him first and others. Go to Matthew 12, 28. Matthew 12, 28. Anything that takes you away from your first love. Anything. Matthew 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing they had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Our Lord, our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord. Your God, with all your heart, <clears throat> excuse me, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. To love, you see, love God and love others with everything you've got. Now, that's a challenge for an American because most Americans would prefer to love them their own lives themselves and their own lives. In some cases, it's children. In some cases, in weird cases, it could be even animals. I don't know. People are weird. But certain things take them away from God. And it's usually love for self or someone other than God. And that's the problem. So there's the point on the board. Again, that's the blessings litmus test. If what you're doing is taking away from the fir- your first love, it isn't from God. No matter what anybody says... No matter what your human sensibilities say. Here's where we left off last Sunday with our series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord up here on the board. This is all that's being developed. 22 parts now. We're almost done today. 22 parts woven together to amplify this on the board. That's what this is about. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. We just saw that again this morning. Obedience is the evidence of it, ensuring righteousness. We've gotten loads of that over the last 21 lessons. Devotion is the focus activity. That's the title. That's been the theme. And then peace and joy are the results. You want peace and joy in your life? This is how it happens. Humility, obedience, devotions in there. The resultant fruit. Peace and joy in your life. Are we perfect at any of this during our lifetime? No. No. However, be encouraged up here on the board. I'll give you the Amplified Classic, Philippians 1.6. Paul wrote, I am convinced 
ensure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll sanctify you. Right up, until, right up to the time of his return, developing that good work and perfecting and bringing it to full completion in you. In other words, he's not going to leave you alone. Sometimes despite ourselves, right? He's not going to leave us alone. If you're here this morning, there's no way you're not convicted over something. That's how he works. He sort of like, you know, turns the can opener a couple few more notches. All right? Eventually the can pops open and he's like, well, what do we have here? And you're like, oh, had that on preserves. Was holding out, huh? Yeah, you were holding out. Let's talk about this. And then you have the, you know, quote unquote, come to Jesus time. And that happens in your life some, at some point, and that, just like it happened in my life at some point. Just like it happened in your life when it came to salvation proper. When finally you repented and had faith. You understand? That was a, quote, come to Jesus moment in your life. Conversion, as we know, takes time. Well, sanctification takes time. Why? Because we drag our feet, because there's an attractiveness to the darkness. All of this serves as a backdrop to a recurring theme, and I'm sort of coming out of the mine shaft now because we are, believe it or not, getting close to closing up shop on this series. All of this ser- uh, serves as the backdrop for a recurring theme and our studies over the past month or so now. God is asking us to excel still more. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 10. Some of you are like, but, you know, this is kind of this is kind of hardcore because it's like I'm already kind of doing, you know, I'm, I'm like, he's like, yeah, that's great, but I want more. You know, you don't just arrive and then plateau. I want more. I want more till the day you die. And by the way, I'm a jealous God. So if you love someone or something more than you love me, I have a problem with that. We just read that. What's the greatest command? Love him first, then others. And if you don't, I have a problem with that. And all those little moments where you love someone else or something else in your life, and then you call it a blessing because you're a pervert, right? It's all a lie. He's like, I don't want that either. I don't want there to be any moments where you, because even, all right, this is my favorite. This is one of my favorites. Okay. Why do people do this? It's my birthday. I can do anything I want. Not really. So you want to celebrate your birth by being a pervert? By being a whack job? By being a drunk? What do you... This is how we're supposed to celebrate your life? I want to celebrate... I, me, I want to celebrate my birth by being an idiot. By being complete blasphemous to God. Where the hell does that come from? Excuse my French. No, for real, where do people get off? It's the wackiest thing, is it not? There's no time where you supposedly get some free pass. God's not like that. You know, God's not like your stupid friends. And say, oh, it's okay, as they're holding your head over the porcelain ring, right? It's all right, it's your birthday, go for it. No, that's not God at all. God doesn't do that. God doesn't encourage that. God doesn't buy a limo so you can go out and be that for the night. Do you, bachelorette parties? Bachelor parties? What the hell are those all about? 
I'm serious. What in the hell are those all about? You're going to go get married, so you're going to go what? Have a, have a night with somebody else? Some people are like, oh, honey, it was years ago. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just making a point. We don't get, there's no, like, free passes. It's Excel still more. We don't get to keep little corner cases, you know, like they're ours, but they're ours. No, they're not yours. Your life is hidden in Christ. Your life is Christ. Your life was redeemed by Christ, paid by the blood of Christ. Amen? What are you doing then? But I don't want to give up. No. 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 This is what God's asking us. Excel excel still more. I see it. You see it. So says God. Let's talk about this. So as we've been studying in Holy Scripture, the key activity, just like you probably, I mean, that was what's deduced from what I just talked about for three minutes. You can either choose to obey or choose to disobey. You all got a nice little chuckle just then. Why? Is that a nervous laugh? (laughs) Oh, man, I don't like this. I don't know. I suppose it probably is a nervous laugh for some of you, knowing some of you. I don't know. I think I'll end in this next point. <clears throat> People are like, did you see everybody? Did you guys see that? No, for real. I think I'll end in this next point. <sighs> everybody went back in their chairs. You should see what I see. It's hilarious. Body language is the best. It's so. I'm going to write a book. So awesome. Okay, I'm just about ready to close. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> it's like a little kid when they get mad. <laughs> Anyways, one conclusion we, I think is worth ending on. We got uh, communion service this morning from our previous lessons. And we're about half to two-thirds of the way out of the mind shaft, if you would. The sphere of love. Anyone abiding in the sphere of love wants to do what love desires. In the case of children of God, it is to obey their Father in heaven. Do you love Him? Do you love the Lord? Because He's the one calling you. He's the one saying, excel still more. He's the one saying, remember your first love? Do you remember how appreciative you were of me when I saved you? Do you remember how, much, how grateful you were that day when you realized that you were saved? Do you remember all that? What happened? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? I've been saving you daily. I've been making sure you're going to make, it, make your way all the way up to heaven with me someday. Where'd you go? Up here on the board. I think I'll close with this. True believers will habitually do certain things, as the Bible teaches very clearly. There's a whole practical side to sanctification, starting with the cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessings. Again, true believers will habitually do certain things. They will habitually obey. Doesn't mean they're always going to do it, but habitually they will. Their lifestyles even. This is what the Bible teaches very clearly. 
there's a whole practical side to sanctification, starting with the cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessings. That relationship is just another way of talking about sanctification. And as we learn from Holy Scripture, sanctification is the very will of God. So the one who loved you enough to die for you, to humble himself to become a man, that same one that loves you enough, his will for you is to sanctify you. And what that person is saying to you, the one who loves you more than anybody else could ever possibly love you, is say, obey. For your own good. Excel still more. Obey still more. Remain in humility so I can grace you out. I want to grace you out. This is what I want to do. I love you. I want to spoil you rotten, so to speak. Don't take the negative side of spoil. You know what I'm saying. I just want to abundantly bless you out. Not the lies. Not the blessings that you call blessings that aren't really blessings. Not those ones from the kingdom of darkness. Not that kind of blessing. Blessings that I have reserved for you. That's what I want to give you. Obey. Amen? All right, let's get the... uh, Communion elements out. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper now. Thank you, gentlemen. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Remember why we are following this ritual this morning. And remember what it is that we are celebrating. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of love. And love hung on a cross that day. Colossians 3.14 reads, 
Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So you see, Jesus being love is also the singular bond that ties us all together. So when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the one person able to unify us into a single body. Matthew 26, 26 reads, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for bringing into remembrance why we celebrate such things. Father, thank you for the fellowship that we share in a unity that only you can provide through your Son. Father, we are so very grateful as well for this morning's message, for tying so many things together in our souls, for convicting us, for delivering us. For we know that our sanctification is your will, the one who loved us to make all this possible. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.